Now, the top of the hour on the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn presents the Green News Report. There's no safe level of, of wildfire smoke inhalation for anyone. Raging Canadian wildfires threaten summer of smoke on both sides of the border. The fish simply can't breathe. Tens of thousands of dead fish wash up on a Texas beach. Plus, what do you want the state of Montana to do differently? They just need to take steps to mitigate their fossil fuel emissions. Montana kids' landmark climate lawsuit gets underway, putting the state on trial for failing to address climate change. All of those failures and more straight ahead from Bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis, and snarky comment. I just wonder, like, how would you guys get electricity out here if there wasn't fossil fuel usage? Wind, solar, renewable energy. Is this your first day in the media, lady? Man, this is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, how, oh, how are we possibly going to get electricity if we don't use fossil fuels. It's just unthinkable, I guess. Apparently in Montana, the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine. And that lady is from Vice News. No wonder they're going out of business. What do you got for us today, Des? (laughs) Well, first, Canada is still battling a truly unprecedented fire season, fighting 461 active fires that have burned nearly 20,000 square miles so far, driven by unseasonably hot and dry conditions. The dangerous smoke from the fires is triggering new air quality alerts on both sides of the border, including across the entire upper Midwest this week in the United States. During the recent smoke event in New York City, hospital emergency room visits spiked for asthma complications and respiratory illnesses. In an AP interview, Dr. Lauren Wold of Ohio State University warned that the smoke is likely to persist all summer. We're seeing exceptionally high levels um, in the last couple days uh, because of these wildfires. And unfortunately, these levels will likely remain high until the fires are out. Also in Canada, in Alberta, farmers are warning of an imminent wheat crop failure due Mm. to the same prolonged drought that is exacerbating the wildfires. In the Arctic, a new study warns that the North Pole is likely to lose its summer sea ice in the 2030s. That's about 40 years earlier than scientists previously predicted due to accelerating man-made global warming. A growing body of evidence links loss of Arctic sea ice to a slowdown in the jet stream which in turn is increasing the intensity of extreme weather events across the Northern Hemisphere. And by the way, that's almost exactly what a report that Al Gore had cited had warned about decades ago at this point, and right-wingers have been beating him up for it ever since. Looks like he was uh, right again. Yep, it does. And in Antarctica, scientists are also sounding new alarms over the consequences of ice loss, which new evidence indicates is slowing down a critical deep-sea current that could have potentially profound implications for the global climate and marine life. In Texas, pretty bad and stinky. A popular beach south of Houston this week was closed after tens of thousands of dead fish washed ashore due to lack of oxygen, according to wildlife officials. That's because warming waters have less capacity to hold dissolved oxygen, and a new first-of-its-kind study warns that the same mechanism is also triggering mass fish kills in lakes. The researchers found that hundreds of lakes in the U.S. and Europe are also warming also losing oxygen, and mass fish kills are becoming more common as global warming boosts lake temperatures. In the U.S. House, the Republican majority passed a bill that has zero chance of becoming law in order to block the Consumer Product Safety Commission from setting safety standards for natural gas-fired stoves, which studies confirm are significant sources of indoor air pollution. A recent investigation uncovered internal documents showing how gas stove manufacturers have known since the 1970s about gas stove air pollution. NPR reports that in the 1980s, stove manufacturers Manufacturers developed a cleaner and more efficient burner, but never manufactured the new technology because it cost more and because consumers weren't demanding it. 
Finally, some good news. A landmark youth climate lawsuit is now underway in a Montana courtroom, the first in the U.S. to make it to trial. Sixteen young plaintiffs allege that state officials, by prioritizing development of fossil fuels, are violating the kids' rights to a clean and healthful environment that's enshrined in the state constitution. The Republican-controlled state just enacted a law barring state agencies from considering emissions or climate change in environmental reviews of proposed projects. Lead plaintiff Ricky Held explained to Vice News why the kids took action. My generation and kids now, we can't wait for the next one to come along and fix this. But how, oh how, will they ever be able to get electricity without fossil fuels? For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to today, check out our website at greennews.bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyan. And this has been your Green News Report. Please help progressive voices support the Green News Report by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm Interfaith Alliance President Reverend Paul Brandeis Rauschenbusch in New York City. As part of the launch of Faith for Pride Campaign 2023, Interfaith Alliance brought together a diverse group of leaders of faith and conscience to hear why and how they are creating events and opportunities to highlight the moral mandate for LGBTQI plus inclusion in their work and ministry. We heard so many good things. It seemed essential to share those voices with you here on State of Belief. And so this week you'll hear Reverend Don Abram, Reverend Tracy Blackman, Sushma Duivedi, Pastor Bill Knezovich, Tracy Labgold, Maharat Rory Pickernice, Philippe Zurita Quintana, Ani Zonenfeld and Malachi Garza. We are in an exciting new era for State of Belief. We've partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country for distribution and expansion of the show. We hope the important conversations we produce each week will reach new audiences and contribute even more to the search for strategies and solutions to the very real challenges facing our nation. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast platform or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. We have so much planned for the weeks and months ahead, and I don't want you to miss out. So subscribe to The State of Belief today. The State of Belief is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation, thank you for helping get these conversations heard by more people who need them. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. And you can find out more about the work of Interfaith Alliance and join us at interfaithalliance.org. And now, let's get started with this celebration of Faith for Pride 2023. I also want to extend a special thank you to the partners who have helped organize this, including the Anti-Defamation League, Keshet, the Religious Action Center of Reform Judaism, and the United Religions Initiative. And they have been kind of the, the central core um, that have helped make this possible. I also want to give a shout out to my colleague, Maureen O'Leary. Behind everything, Maureen O'Leary has been working so hard to make this possible. And Maureen, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. So now, without further ado, I have the extraordinary privilege to introduce our lineup. So we're going to start with uh, the Reverend Don Abram, who is a Chicago native and founder of Pride in the Pews, a grassroots nationwide nonprofit that bridges the gap between the Black church and LGBTQ plus people. Um, so it's through, they use storytelling, political education, civic engagement. I'm so glad to welcome my friend and, and sibling, Reverend Don Abram. Please, Reverend Don, take it away. You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. You may trod in me in the very dirt, but still like dust, I'll rise. You may shoot me with your words. You may cut me with your eyes. You may kill me with your hatefulness, but still like air, I'll rise. 
Maya Angelou. It is an unmitigated joy and unadulterated pleasure to be in community with such a compelling cadre of comrades and co-conspirators. With great appreciation and innumerable pride, I'd like to thank the Inter Interfaith Alliance team and Reverend Paul Rauschenbusch for the opportunity to celebrate the beginning of Pride Month with all of you. Uh, I am the founder and executive director of Pride in the Pews, and for us, we work to ensure that Black LGBTQ plus Christians can thrive in the public square, the pulpit, and the pew. As a queer son of the Black church, our mission is deeply personal to me. If you would permit me a moment of personal privilege, I'd like to invite you to promenade through the sacred annals of my own lived experience. Put simply, do you mind if I testify? Queerness haunted me for years. It lurked in the shadows of my life with little regard for my comfort or convenience. I rejected its alluring embrace with every fiber of my being. Desperate for relief, I found refuge in the place that promised deliverance, the Black church. I got it, but not in the way that you may think. As the son of a Southern preacher and Patois-speaking grandmother, the church was my second home. That is, until queerness manifested. In the twinkling of an eye, the church that raised me nearly turned its back on me. In an instance, I was betwixt and between. The fear compelled me to adopt ways of being that did not speak to the dynamism of my intersecting identities. As I see it, pride in the pews is an embodied invitation to people of faith. We are inviting our faith communities to resist the vestiges of dehumanizing theologies that serve to harm members of our community. We are asking our beloved traditions to sever its connection to systems of oppression that seek to dehumanize the disinherited and ostracize the othered. In essence, we are offering the church an opportunity to be made whole by seeing Black LGBTQ plus Christians as beloved by God and as worthy of care, compassion, and community. Now, while I understand for some, this may seem as if it is a monumental task, but I humbly and with all due respect beg to differ. Our very presence here today is an embodied refutation to the notion that things cannot change. Our collective voice declaring the Imago Day in all of God's children is evidence of our abiding and deep commitment to reclaim our liberating traditions for unadulterated freedom. And so in those moments where the task seems unlikely, or seems too heavy to hold, I want to lift up the words of Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., wherein he writes, was Jesus not an extremist in love? And so I ask you, what kind of extremist will you be today? And I will argue that my heart is full and my faith is renewed because I am staring in the face of an august virtual body who's intent on being creative extremists, disrupting the status quo, challenging dehumanizing theologies, and ushering in a world wherein no one is seen as other or is treated as other. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Reverend. Uh, appreciate that testimony. Our next speaker is Philippe Zurita Quintana, who serves as the Leadership Council Chair for the United Religions Initiative of North America. Philippe, we're so glad you're with us today, and we're so glad that URI was able to be one of the organizing groups around uh, Faith for Pride this year. So thank you so much. Um, we're truly grateful to be able to be part of this uh, initiative. You know, we are an interfaith organization. We try to collaborate with everyone, adopting an understanding that the interfaith movement is the most inclusive of movements that we can experience in our lifetime. Um, I think that one of the most important things that unites us is the understanding of the golden rule. Uh, in Confucianism, we see it as one word which sums up the basis of all good conduct, loving kindness. Do not do to others what you do not want done to yourself. We see it in Christianity when Matthew it says, in everything do to others as you will have them do unto you, to the, for this is the law and the prophets. In Islam, no one of you truly believes until you wish for others what you wish for yourself. Judaism, what is hateful to you, 
do not do to your neighbor. This is the whole Torah. All the rest is commentary. And I can go on and on with Sikhism, Hinduism, Buddhism, um, Baha'is, and every other spiritual practice and ancient civilization that has existed through the earth. We believe in this eternal principle of the golden rule, treating others as we want to be treated. And how important it is for us to put ourselves in the shoes of somebody else that might be living an experience that is completely different from the one that we are experiencing. Um, URI is really, really um, interested on fighting religious motivated violence. This is considered religious motivated violence. When we're using religion to weaponize against our siblings, our human siblings, our earth, we are seeing that this is manipulation of a beautiful community that could lead us to more unity, to more justice, to more equity and equality. We might see so much violence inspired by religion, but there are people in all those different religions that also stand for justice and for equality. So what are some things that anyone, part of a community, that, for part of an organization or religion, is seeing maybe this religious motivated, um, uh, this, this violence, religious motivated violence against us LGBTQ people? Speak up, stand up use the golden rule this is that one principle that your preacher that your reverend might be teaching you and it's in your scriptures use the golden rule to justify the love and compassion that we should be giving to everybody else question and ask why is it that we're doing this and then organize we have the freedom the beautiful freedom to live in here in the united states where we have the opportunity to organize to speak up to make sure that our legislators locally and state and federally can hear our voices. Join yourself with other brothers and sisters in your religion. Join your join with other brothers and sisters and siblings in different religions in your local communities. There's power in unity and showing that a Hindu, a Buddhist, a Jewish person, a Muslim and a Christian can come together to capital and talk to legislators and say, we do not approve and we do not um, go for bills that are targeting our trans sisters and brothers, our LGBTQ members, and everybody else in our society. The moment we understand that by hosting safe spaces is crucial to the growth of our per our personal growth, but our community our communal growth, is the moment that will stop attacking anyone that might sound, look or act differently than we personally think is the normality. Because let me tell you something, as we are all here in our different religions and our different spiritual practice, we're all quite different from each other. And what normal means to me might be very different from what normal means to you. Thank you for this opportunity. I hope that we can keep collaborating and helping on this incredible journey that is to find justice and equity for all of us, all of us. Thank you so much for that. Next is uh, is Pandit Sushma. She is um, has an amazing project that I'll let her talk more about. But welcome, Pandit Sushma. Thank you, um, Urban Paul. I am finding myself really emotional at listening to everyone speak, um, and um, I I think that's largely because I'm so moved at the incredible interfaith movement. Um, I've personally got into the pundit game, if you will, um, because it was deeply personal to me while I was getting married myself. I'm a boring old cisgender straight woman with two children, and my husband has a transgender sibling. And when we were embarking upon the wedding process ourselves many, many years ago, um, it became painfully obvious to me that perhaps our trans sibling would not have the same experience. And I feel really ignorant that I didn't actually think about what that experience would be like for them sooner than when I was going through it myself, but they really wouldn't have been able to find a pundit. And that just to me felt like absolute crap. So I tapped deep into some roots and um, I am lucky enough to be in my forties and have a, a living grandparent and my grandmother um, who helped me train to become a more progressive, inclusive Hindu pundit. I've come from a long line of pundits as family. And I made it very clear to her that my intention was to provide services to the LGBTQ community because I just didn't think it was right. And to her credit, she said, good. Go help people get married. Go help them have children. Go help them start their families, whatever their families look like. And as I became a parent myself, um, it became increasingly important to me to make sure that my kids knew a world where everyone was equal. And that's why it brings me so much joy to have kids Diwali every year in a boisterous room full of 
families of all shapes and sizes and in many, many forms. Um, when I got started, I will say I did feel a little bit alone. Um, I found that anytime I got any visibility, I've been yelled at at providing wedding services um, and and services to, to families from the LGBT community. Um, and it's gotten much better. And I think that this interfaith showing is a really incredible testament to leaders such as ourselves coming together to rally across faith and let members of our community know you're never alone, that we stand with you in allyship and advocacy across every spectrum we can possibly take to, whether it's taking to the streets of Capitol Hill or fighting the online fight, although I personally try not to engage on Twitter anymore myself. Um, it's just, you know, as it is and wherever you go, you are loved. Um, so I, I think that um, as a South Asian and a member of the Hindu community, um, I really didn't know any other faith leaders myself when I was getting started. And now we have a small network of progressive pundits. So um, I try to stay in touch with them and we keep in touch on top of each other's activities to make sure that we can show up. And part of the reason we feel the need to mobilize so much more importantly is because unfortunately the hateful voices are loud. Um, they're loud and they're really relatively well organized, if I may say so myself. And so I think it's incumbent upon folks like us to get louder and organize better and smarter and take to whatever avenues we have um, to set a better example, because it doesn't have to be the way. There is no hateful scripture out there. The only thing that's full of hate is someone's interpretation. So I feel um, quite quite humbled to be in this group myself. Um, I can't thank you enough for letting me join. Um, I look forward to a robust Pride Month, as I'm sure all the rest of you are participating in as well. And let's make the world a better place together. Our next speaker is Ani Zonenfeld, uh, who is a writer, a singer, songwriter, and founder and president of Muslims for Progressive Values, an international human rights organization that advocates for social justice and equality for all. Thank you, Paul, and uh, peace greetings to everyone. Salam alaikum. Um, so I share Pandit Shushma's experiences and journey into, into the work that I do within the Muslim community. And so I re, uh, it really resonated for me. Um, so last week in advance of Pride Month, uh, 153 plus religious leaders in America, mostly in America, signed on a, um, a position statement that basically stated that they did not recognize the legitimacy of LGBTQ people which includes their rights as human beings substantiated by their interpretation of theology and their constitutional right to hold such discriminating positions in the name of Islam. And what is really appalling is that they uh, basically as ultra-Orthodox Muslims have uh, represented a very minority group of uh, American Muslims because over 52% of American Muslims actually support uh, LGBTQ rights. And what is also just as appalling is their omission of the rich history of Islam and the teachings of the Quran. So for example, the word Mukannath in the Quran, that is a direct reference to gender variant people. In the Quran chapter 24, 31 through 33, it describes the characteristics of people as men who do not desire women. These are direct references to sexual diversity in what is believed, according to Muslims, is God's words, mentioned with that on an iota of hate or prejudice. So the omission of all these rich facts by these religious leaders are nothing short of misleading, falsifying the true teachings of the Quran. Throughout Islamic history, even, there has been Islamic laws on inheritance for hermaphrodites. And so all this are these valuable teachings that is conveniently omitted within the traditional ultra-Orthodox Muslim community. And so for progressive Muslims, Muslims for progressive values, we've been advocating for the equality and the spiritual equality of all human beings. There's a very, very important um, uh, verse in the Quran where it talks about there's a moment in the womb where God blows the spirit of God into the womb. Therefore, all of us, regardless of religion or no religion, 
gender um, in, in all its diversity. We are all spiritual equals. And this too is a rich teaching that is not being taught as at the core of what it means to be a Muslim or what it means to be a good and just human being. And so one of the efforts that we have done is um, we started a campaign. How do we move this forward? How do we challenge religious leaders to really step forward? So we are urging for the, all those religious leaders who have not um, signed on to this intolerant, hateful position statements, for them to sign on to get have their voices heard in an initiative that we started some years ago after the Pulse shooting, and it's called No Hate in Our Faith, and it's on our website, and I urge all religious leaders, particularly Muslim religious leaders, to sign on to this. And this, this pledge is basically to say we are no longer going to teach the a theology of hate, regardless of where that hate is directed, whether it's to African Americans, to uh, the people, uh, Jewish uh, people, whether it be to LGBTQ people from Sunni to Shia, Shia to Sunni. Let's just do away with the theology of hate, regardless of what religion you are. Thank you. Thank you so much. Our next speaker is Maharat Rory Picker Nace, uh, who serves as the executive director of the Jewish Community Relations of Council of St. Louis. Um, prior to that, she was director of programming, education, and community engagement at Bias Abraham Congregation, a modern Orthodox Jewish synagogue in University City, uh, Missouri. She is one of the first graduates of Yeshivat Maharat, a pioneering institution training Orthodox Jewish women to be spiritual leaders and Al-Hakh uh, Jewish legal authorities. So, Maharat Rory. Well, I thank you for uh, for this invitation, for the wonderful introduction you did, um, and I'm so grateful to you, to all of the co-sponsors, and, and to all of the speakers who have just been so incredibly inspiring. It really is such an honor to be among this group today, and with all of you who are here together to launch Pride Month. Um, as you heard, I'm the Executive Director of the Jewish Community Relations Council in St. Louis. Um, I'm here also as a faith leader in the Orthodox Jewish community, um, but most proudly, I'm here as the mother of three of the most thoughtful, kind, and creative children that God could give me the gift of raising, one of whom is 12 years old and a transgender boy. For four years, four years, my family and I have been traveling to our state capital to beg those charged with protecting us to see my son as human, as a person deserving of dignity, respect, basic rights. And we have begged them, begged not to hurt our family. And for four years, we have sat in hearing rooms, listening to person after person sit down to testify and say why harming transgender people is what God wants. For four years, I have met with bill sponsors, some of whom introduced themselves as pastors, and listened to them tell committees why their faith demands that they advance this hate-filled legislation. And for four years, I have smiled politely and waited patiently for the opportunity to sit in their offices, to try to tell them about my family, only to have them tell me as I wept on their couches how they were acting out of love to save my family. And I have watched them celebrate as anti-trans legislation and anti-LGBTQ plus policies advance in the state of Missouri and across our country. I have spoken to so many people, so many people who have told me that they don't know their place in this fight that they themselves are not queer, and so they don't have a voice in this space. And so I wanna to say to you today that there are people out there, powerful people, and they are speaking in your name. They are speaking in the name of your faith. And if you have not yet spoken out, then let today be the day that you take your voice back. For too long, we have allowed faith to be the voice that silenced our children, kicked out the vulnerable, and tried to quash the most beautiful and creative souls blessing us on this earth. But no more. 
Because my faith is a faith that recognizes that divinity is so much bigger, so much bigger than any binary. That God is a God of expansiveness and no narrow definition of God can ever suffice. And that every person is created in the image of the divine. And so to access that divine, I need to see, to truly see every single person. Wherever you stand, whatever you have done before, you already have a voice in this fight. And my plea, my charge, and my prayer is that you are ready to answer the call to take your voice and to make sure that voice is a voice for good, for love, and for the holy, for all of us. Thank you. Coming up next, more leaders of faith and conscience share their support for Faith for Pride. If you miss any part of today's program, you can hear full episodes of State of Belief anytime on our website. And please make sure you subscribe to the Next Generation Podcast. Please go to stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. That's stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. You're listening to the State of Belief where religion and democracy meet. State of Belief Radio, twice every weekend on the Progressive Voices Network. Nine one one. What's your emergency? America's healthcare system is broken, and people are dying. Welcome to Code Whack, where we shine a light on America's callous healthcare system, how it hurts us, and what we can do about it. I'm your host, Brenda Gazar. This time on Code Whack. What exactly is a doula, and how does it differ from a midwife? How can doulas support those who are most likely to die from giving birth? To find out, we spoke to Stannis Askew, a full-spectrum doula in Southern California who helps families from conception until after birth. Black women tend to not be heard. You have a higher pain tolerance, so then when you say, I'm in pain and I need something, it's, you're okay, just push through it. When in truly... There's something wrong and that's what I'm telling you. So listen to what I'm saying and evaluate me versus just assuming my pain tolerance is higher and I should just push through it. That does happen. And I think as far as doulas being present, they can help be the advocate for the patient. They don't have the right to speak on behalf of the patient, but they can educate their patient to make sure that they are asking the right questions or to be seen appropriately. Or even if it's not the patient themselves, the family member that also may be supporting them, give that advice to them. So it's an advocate role, an educational role that a doula would play. Get the full Code Wax story on ProgressiveVoices.com and on the PV app. Catch all our episodes by subscribing to Code Whack wherever you find your podcasts. This podcast is powered by Heal California, a nonprofit that uplifts the voices of those fighting for healthcare reform around the country. Until next time, stay healthy. Hey, it's Stephanie Miller. Here's what we're talking about. Yeah, I'm going to go. Uh, the best evidence that uh, Trump has been told he's getting indicted is he said he's not. He hasn't been told he's getting indicted. Right. I'm going to guess like his lawyers were. And also the panicky truths that he's been yes. sending out. Since, yes. Since he's been told. Yeah. Right. Uh, Maggie Haberman, uh, New York Times, said Trump tells me minutes ago he has not been told he's getting indicted when contacted. It's not true, he said. Oh, so that's how you know. Right. Adding again that he's done nothing wrong. Right. So then uh, Trump uh, trough after that. me I'm being indicted and I shouldn't be because I've done nothing wrong, but I have assumed for years that I'm a target of the weaponized DOJ and the FBI. Okay, maybe this is what Baby's reacting to. DOJ is preparing to ask a D.C. grand jury to indict Trump for violating the Espionage Act oh. and for obstruction of justice. Yep. 
According to the Independent, this is what everybody was talking about yesterday. The Independent has learned that prosecutors are ready to ask grand jurors to approve an indictment against Trump for violating a portion of the U.S. criminal code known as Section 793. The use of Section 793, which does not make reference to classified information, is understood to be a strategic decision by prosecutors that has been made to short-circuit Trump's ability to claim that he used his authority as president to declassify documents he removed from the White House and kept at uh, Mar-a-Lago long after his term expired. It is understood the former uh, congressman will plead guilty to several federal charges as part of a deal for which he has already received limited immunity in exchange for his testimony. It's always, you know, I get this is how criminal law works, mm-hmm. right? Is that, you know, you just, you want all these mothers to go to jail. You know what I mean? Find the Stephanie Miller Show every Monday through Friday at 9 to noon Eastern, 6 to 9 Pacific, right here on Progressive Voices. Whether you're listening to Leslie Marshall each Tuesday through Friday or Brad Bannon each Monday, you can hear them from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. Here's a sample of what you'll hear. U.S. Surgeon General Vivek Murthy uh, issued a warning today that social media poses a threat to kids' mental health, escalating calls for new safeguard aimed at minors. I don't mean to be rude, but like, did you really need like a degree in rocket science to figure that out? I have two teenagers. I have no medical degree, and I'm sorry, but any moron knows that. Seriously, can you not figure that out? We need to have studies for this. We're, I mean, look at our kids. Look at the rate of teen suicide. Anorexia. Uh, the, 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 the bullying, the body shaming. The, I mean, the list goes on. Again, that's Leslie Marshall every Tuesday through Friday and Brad Bannon every Monday from 6 to 7 p.m. Eastern on the Progressive Voices Network. This is State of Belief Radio on the Progressive Voices Network. Welcome back to the State of Belief. I'm Paul Rauschenbusch. We are hearing from a diverse lineup of leaders and activists about why they're working to include LGBTQI plus persons into their ministry and communities as part of Faith for Pride campaign. Our next speaker is Pastor Bill Knezovich, pastor of Our Savior Lutheran Church in Fresno, California. Our Savior has long been a welcoming LGBTQ plus affirming place of worship. Because of this, anti-LGBTQ extremists have made threats against this congregation. In April of this year's vandals broke dozens of windows at Our Savior Church, an incident that is still under investigation. In the months since, Interfaith Alliance of Central California and other faith community members have joined in solidarity with the congregation, demonstrating that hate has no place in Fresno. Pastor, welcome. We're so glad you're with us here today. Well, thank you for inviting me. I'm very honored to be here. Um, uh, Dr. Sigrid is, was to be here, but right now she's with uh, all the folks you mentioned uh, reading a letter to our mayor, who last year at the flag raising had promised to uh, to be more inclusive in his one Fresno. And uh, to date, uh, we have received no support from the city. Um, most of our support has come either from the, our uh, interfaith community or uh, from the federal government at this point. So in December, uh, we had a family-friendly drag show and it was scheduled for December 10th, which we did do. But before that, we started getting all the hate calls and threatening calls, which are under investigation. And uh, the Proud Boys, they showed up in quite a big number. Um, of course, we're identified as a fake church, grooming children. And yet they stood out there uh, just most vile language and signs uh, aimed at the children and their parents who had come. And since then, we've had threats, and of course, on uh, April 17th was when all the damage was done to the church. Now, um, I'm gay myself, and half my congregation is uh, from the LGBTQ community, and plus, we're a very ethnically mixed congregation. So the attacks on us uh, would have felt, well, it was aimed to alienate and isolate us, but I have to say that I'm very thankful for our interfaith colleagues who um, are, uh, as I said right now, reading a letter um, out loud at one of the flag raising, 
uh, but they came and support and have stood with us. So all I have to say is, you know, as we were cleaning up the glass at our vigil, the only thing I could think of was the crystal knock. And much of what I see that's taking place right now is uh, very scarily similar to what happened before fascism took over Germany. And, and I see that rise in fascism here in Fresno, especially among our elected officials. And unfortunately, we are in a fairly conservative area. We do have some uh, of our elected officials that are sympathetic, uh, but they really don't say much. Um, I think they value their positions on council or their positions in other areas um, of power more than they value the community. So again, I want to thank everybody who has been very supportive of us. Um, we've always been involved in community organizing and, you know, it's just a matter now of us continuing to do that. Our Pride Parade and Festival is coming up this uh, Saturday. We will be in there along with all the uh, supportive clergy and uh, with big pictures of all the damage done to the church with the reality that attack on one is an attack on all. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pastor. And I just want to say that what it is is terrorism. Our next speaker is Tracy Lab Gold, a Florida Education and Training Manager for the Jewish LGBTQ organization Keshet. She works with Jewish organizations across the state to help them create a sense of belonging for all LGBTQ Jews and their family members who enter spaces and participate in their programming. Tracy has a Master's of Education from Teachers College at Columbia University and chairs the ADL's National Education Committee. She and her wife, Michelle, have five children. Tracy, welcome. Thank you so much and happy Pride Month, y'all. Um, it is an honor and a really humbling pleasure to be on this panel with all of you. Um, as the Reverend said, my name is Tracy and my pronouns are she, her. I am Florida's education and training manager for Keshet, where my role is to work with Jewish organizations across the state to help them ensure that LGBTQ plus Jews and their family members who walk through their doors feel a sense of belonging. I'm also a longtime supporter of the ADL, a 110-year-old global anti-hate organization whose mission is to stop the defamation of the Jewish people and to secure justice and fair treatment for all. ADL and Keshet are so grateful to be part of this important coalition. Too often, religion is weaponized to harm the queer community, and the beauty of this interfaith coalition is to remind folks that we are taught that God created each of us in God's image. And therefore, each of us is holy in our full humanity. And the data from the Public Religion Research Institute's 2022 American Values Atlas Survey shows that continuing trends from previous years, vast majorities of most major religious groups support non-discrimination protections for LGBTQ plus people, including 86% of Jewish Americans. The Talmud teaches us that to save a life is to save the world entire. Transgender and gender non-conforming women, especially women of color and black women in particular, have disproportionately been targets of violence for years. We need to do more to keep our siblings safe and alive. ADL Center on Extremism monitors anti-LGBTQ hate and extremism and has tracked a rise in hateful anti-LGBTQ rhetoric and incidents over the past few years. We've seen this lead to violence, lead to fear in the LGBTQ community broadly, lead to fear and insecurity among LGBTQ Jews who are part of our community. In Florida, that fear is tangible. The fight against anti-Semitism and the fight against anti-LGBTQ hate are inextricably connected. It is not unusual for the hateful ideology that drives anti-LGBTQ extremism to be intertwined with anti-Semitism. Some anti-LGBTQ plus fear-mongering simultaneously lifts anti-Semitic stereotypes and conspiracy theories about the alleged Jewish role in promoting the so-called LGBTQ plus agenda. Some of the rhetoric driving attacks on hospitals that provide medical and psychological care to transgender youth also include anti-Semitism, 
highlighting the deeply rooted relationship between anti-transgender and anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. The past few years have seen increasing waves of anti-LGBTQ legislation driven by harmful and dangerous anti-LGBTQ rhetoric. Takun Olam, the Jewish concept to leave the world better than we found it, compels us to fight these laws, to create a better, safer world for LGBTQ people, especially our youth. And this is why Keshet and ADL are involved. We must speak up, share facts, show strength, and work in coalition to create a brighter future. Thank you. Our next speaker, Malachi Garza, is currently the organizing director at Solidaire Network, a community of donor organizations who mobilize quickly to get critical resources and solidarity to the front lines of social justice movements. Malachi also serves on the boards of Song Power, Auburn Theological Seminary, and GLSEN, and is one of the most inspiring speakers I've ever had the privilege of hearing. So Malachi, welcome. Oh, wow, what a beautiful intro. Thank you so much. Um, I just want to say thank you uh, to Reverend Paul. It's always an honor to share space um, and this esteemed panel. I feel like I've learned a lot. And I'm going to echo a few things uh, that I think people have said here and uh, try to say something compelling uh, and new in their little three minutes. So flag me down when I'm going too far because, you know, I've been raised in the church, baby. So I like to talk. Um, so uh, I want to say, yes, I have done community organizing for almost three decades now, and now I am part of a national funders network called the Solidaire Network. We move rapid resources to the front lines of social justice efforts across the country and internationally. And I want to do a little bit of truth telling. Um, I will start with saying thank you to my dad who's here. The screen is blurred though, because it's, you know, my office is a little messy. Um, but I grew up in the evangelical church um, and in the movement spaces of the religious right. And I will say I've learned so much um, from studying that movement, and I want to do a little bit of truth-telling um, right now around uh, things I think are important for us to, list, uh, us to lift up as we think about our own moves around community building and relationship building and staying in through trial and turmoil, and a long-term orientation uh, to staying in this together when it gets uncomfortable, investing our time and resources. Um, and so one of the things that I love to talk about is who do we believe is part of the movement? Um, and must we all be actually part of the movement from people who do um, work at the auto parts store to the daycare worker, to the doctor, to the community organizer? If you work at a nonprofit, you work at a church, you work at a bank. I'm going to tell you right now, the, uh, I believe, you know, my God says we are all part of the movement for justice. And so in thinking about us as active contributors to a movement that we all can be part of, uh, then it is our responsibility to think about what is the truth we are telling and how bold are we telling it. And right now the stakes could not be higher. Um, and so we know that the attacks, particularly on the trans community, is a road test for authoritarianism. We've heard that uh, people start to talk about that today, right? Ron DeSantis is contrasting himself with the group of people who violate gender boundary binaries as a way to actually talk about his candidacy for president of the United States, right? We are, genderqueer people are like, you know, trans people are like one to 1.5% of this country. And we are right now the litmus test around who the president wants to contrast themselves to. Something particular is happening. Um, and so while we think about um, this goal around isolating and stigmatizing and in particular demonizing um, this, uh, our communities, it's very much setting up uh, the situation where there can be enacting random acts of violence that we know groups like the Proud Boys um, and the Oath Keepers are very primed to enact on our streets. And then that sets the stage actually for state-sponsored violence. Right. We know that Putin actually did this within a nine year period of Russia. Uh, if you study a little bit of the history, he won his third term by attacking trans people first. Um, and so Re Republicans very much understand transgender issue as a tipping point around body autonomy, around equality in America um, and gender identity really being at the forefront. And so I love to name names, baby. I'm talking about the Alliance for Defending Freedom. I'm talking about the Family Research Council. Rebranding focuses the, on the family, okay? And the Heritage Foundation. So I'm talking about Betsy DeVos, right? It's not 
a mystery that education and body autonomy are going together right now in the forefront of what the right is moving, right? It's also not um, a big secret that when Trump had to staff the White House, they moved half of the staff from the Heritage Foundation into the White House, right? They wrote and architected those bills that we're now seeing passing in all sorts of states in this country, right? So it's, it is very much uh, those of us who study history and want to be involved in creating a world where we all belong, um, and that's good for all of us, uh, to understand this is not like a, how do we get here? Oops. Uh, kind of like many things in the United States, this has been architected for a very long time. Um, it's not a coincidence. Um, and so we know that the anti-trans focus is not just ideological, but it's practical um, and it's cynical and it does provide a gateway into authoritarianism. And if this was another, we had an hour of then we could also talk about ultimately domin dominion, dominionism, one of the, one of the reverends is going to tell me how to pronounce that well, dominionism, um, but that is for another webinar, perhaps Reverend Paul. Uh, so I want to say that who do we believe is part of the movement? We all need to be part of the movement. This is very organized and highly architected uh, struggle for justice. Uh, the forces that we are up against are very clear um, and are very well funded. And so I want to say that the where we saw in our recent past, 90% of all the money ever raised for LGBT causes came from the right to marry issue, right? And so we're actually seeing a moment again where we can galvanize our entire community to be focused and to be flanking a very vulnerable set of our community and a very important tipping point um, and um, a time where we can flank our, our community and wrap our arms around. And so there's a couple organizations I'm gonna throw in in the chat, the Parents for Transgender Equality and the National Council of HRC, the Transgender Legal Defense and Education Fund, Equality Arizona, the National Center for Transgender Equity and the um, National Center for Lesbian Rights are all actually leading the legal effort to challenge these bills. They are helping organize families. They are even helping to do underground railroading of families with trans kids who are fleeing states where their kids can no longer access health care. Um, and so this is a time where if you're watching this and you're like, I work at somewhere, this is maybe not, you know, I'm going to listen to these leaders. This is not, uh, we no longer believe that Rosa Parks was just like a tired lady who happened to randomly be on a bus, right? We are all part of a movement. We can all be organizers. No matter what we do, where we are situated, we are part of this movement for justice. Every speaker here, I'm sure, would love to plug you in to 25 efforts moving locally um, near you. And so we are here as servants um, of our faith traditions, of our peoples, and of the movement. And I will humbly say, I would love to um, support any of you on your journey to actualizing justice. Thank you, it's such an honor to speak with this group today. Malika, you can name names anytime. She is the Associate General Minister of Justice and Local Church Ministries for the United Church of Christ. She is the former senior pastor of Christ the King United Church of Christ in Florence, Missouri, and was the leading voice of frontline spiritual leaders influential in leading prayer vigils and engaging peaceful protests during the unrest in Ferguson, Missouri, after the murder of Michael Brown in 2014, and has continued to um, inspire all of us and rally all of us for justice and truth in this country. So Reverend Tracy, honored to have you on this in this group. I'm so grateful to be here. Thank you for the invitation, Paul, and thank you to all of these powerful witnesses in this gathering today as we begin Pride Month. Uh, I want to particularly thank you, Malachi, for naming those names and reminding us that this is not an accident. Sawabona is a Zulu greeting that literally translates as I see you. To truly see another means to see them and their story, to honor and respect their place in this world. Being seen literally brings people and all that concerns them into our collective consciousness. So I begin my remarks on this first day of Pride Month by saying Sawubona. I see you. We at the United Church of Christ see you and the divine in you. We are living through a scary time in our nation, my friends. The rights of LGBTI plus siblings are under relentless and evil attack. 
Since this legislative session began, there have been more than 650 anti-LGBTI bills put forth throughout the states. 160 of those bills have specifically targeted trans youth and their parents by interfering with their access to safe and medically necessary gender affirming care. I'm here today to remind you that the operative word, the word I want us to hold on to in my statement is through. I join fellow faith leaders on this call to assure you that we have absolutely no intention of living with or in a world that legislates harm to any of God's beloved. We will not adjust, we will not normalize, we will not accept a state of being that is beneath what I believe God intends for all of creation. Yes, our faiths differ, but our resolve does not. And we will get through this. We will get through it together. So today I've come to say Sawabona. We see you, our bold and beautiful queer siblings who are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of the divine. We see you, our scarred and sacred queer siblings of color who for far too long have borne the weight of xenophobia, racism, sexism, and heterosexism in our midst. We see your resistance and resolve and name these two as gifts of the spirit. We see you, our trans siblings, who have laid hands upon themselves and as Natachi Shanga might say, found God there and loved them fiercely. We see you, queer families, not as separate from ourselves, but as connected by all that is holy with us as one. This month and every month, we are here to bear witness that you are loved and adored, you are celebrated and supported, you are deserving of dignity, respect, and support. And we are with you until we all get through this evil together. In just a few weeks, the United Church of Christ will gather for our General Synod in of all places, Indianapolis, Indiana. And on Ju July 1st, which is the day that some of the most egregious legislation that we have seen in this country will go into effect in Indianapolis, we will suspend our time together to go to the Capitol grounds. We will be met there by some of the legislators who understand the threat to all of democracy that what is happening right now poses. And we will stand against what we believe as faith people to be evil if there is such a thing, this is it. We will stand for all we know to be true. And this, my friends, we know to be true, that we are all connected. We are all reflections of the divine, just as we are. And there is absolutely no way that any of us can be safe, can be whole, can be healthy, can be filled with joy, unless that is the possibility for all of us. Sawubano, I see you, we see you, God sees you, thanks be to God. Saobanu. Thank you all so much. Reach out if you have any questions and happy Pride, everybody. And that's all the time we have for this week's State of Belief. Starting this month, we've partnered with Religion News Service, the leading religion journalism organization in the country for distribution and expansion of the show. We hope the important conversations we produce each week will reach new audiences and contribute even more to the search for strategies and solutions to the very real challenges facing our nation. Please be sure to subscribe to the new and improved podcast called The State of Belief at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform 
or at stateofbelief.com slash new podcast. We've got so much planned for the weeks and months ahead, so I don't want you to miss out. Subscribe to The State of Belief today. We need your help to keep growing the state of belief. I hope you'll consider being a partner in this crucial work by making a financial contribution today. Information on how to donate is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And you can also be part of making sure informative and encouraging voices like these are heard by sharing this program with friends and family. Let's bring more people into the conversation. Also, follow us on Facebook and Twitter at State of Belief and share State of Belief with the people in your life. State of Belief is produced by Ray Kirstein and is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. The views and opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Religion News Service or Religion News Foundation. Be sure to join us next week. I can't wait. And until then, I'm Paul Rauschenbusch on the State of Belief, where religion and democracy meet.